Um, God has been good. Uh, the Lord has been gracious. He has been merciful. We have tons of prayer requests going on here. I know the class downstairs, my class in the back Wednesday night, uh, there are a lot of conversations being had right now about things that are of utmost importance. We've got a lot of people grieving losses. Uh, they're hurting. They are in need. Uh, things in the future need to be sorted out. They're waiting on phone calls and tests and all of these other things. So I would just beg you again uh, as a church body together that we would be loving each other well, that we would be praying for each other, um, and that we'd be praying that the will of God would be done, that the growth and the changes and the discipleship and the sanctification that needs to go on uh, in these situations, pray for those things, that they would be happening. God has a reason and a purpose. Okay? We need to lean into those a little bit more instead of um, just the idea, if he wants to, he can remove those circumstances. You are absolutely right, he can. And we can pray that, and that is fine. But we also need to remember that part of these circumstances is growing us more like him. And so we need to pray for patience. We need to pray for strength. Uh, we need to pray that, that our loved ones and our church would be surrounded by others that can help carry that burden. You can pray all of those prayers along with Remove the circumstance. Do the healing, God. Just lift the name of Jesus up. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we love you and we give this morning to you. There are heavy hearts here today. There are heavy hearts uh, every Sunday. And God, right now there are people that need what you have to offer. They need a little bit of sunlight in the middle of the chaos of life. They need, um, they need you to uh, put within them the strength and the courage Lord, they need you to put within them the yieldedness to lean into a good father that has their best interest at heart. God, I pray that you would remind us that is the picture, that is one of the pictures of you in Scripture for us. You are uh, a good father. You're not a, you're not a granddaddy that's sitting up there just letting things happen and letting the kids run amok and it's fine if they tear the house down. That's not what you're doing right now, but you are a good father. You are sitting there with corrective measures uh, Lord, you are sitting there with love and care and patience. You are sitting there with all the wisdom uh, that this world has to offer. You are sitting there with it all, and you are just bestowing those things on your children as they need. I thank you, God, that we can run into your room every day, all day. Beg for wisdom, beg for help, beg for courage, beg for love, beg for intimacy. And you have them all in abundance. And I thank you for the book of James that says you do not give a God begrudgingly. You do not mock the 15th time we come in and ask for that same thing, that same grace, that same wisdom. You do not mock that. You love us and you give abundantly. So God, I just pray that you would help settle our hearts. We are not double-minded. We are not double-hearted. We are steady, strong, and secure in Jesus through the power and the will of the Holy Spirit. This morning, we love you and thank you. Amen. Amen. It is so good to be with you. Let me see here. Technology never works properly. We know that now. So now my slides aren't coming up. Hopefully, Stephen's got a little something for us in the back there. I love this. There we go. How people preach from an iPad, I'll never know. Transitioning to this phone because the internet was going out on me all the time and I couldn't print my notes. That transition was bad enough. Now my phone's not acting properly. So me and technology are just not going to get along. I'm going to be squinting this morning. I got to look at them a different way. There we go. Church on the Rock. It's where we'll be. Matthew chapter 16. We're going to start uh, in verse 13. 
We're going to start back and we're going to run back a little bit of what we read last week, right, in the, the sermon title, Don't Miss, Might Miss, and Can't Miss, Matthew 16. What did I want you to get out of that last week? I wanted you to get three things. Number one, don't miss who the Lord turns away from. You saw that in that passage. The prideful, the arrogant, the demanding, Jesus walks away from them. Evil and adulterous generation, meaning they have divided allegiances. Friends, here this morning, I am begging you, pay attention. The people that you interact with in your life, you're going to see these things come up too. And if Jesus walks away from people with certain character traits, do you think you should hang around them and make them your go-to? Now, the answer to that, because I don't want to trip you up, is no, you don't. If Jesus walks away from prideful, evil, uh, uh, people with divided allegiances, those individuals like that, if he walks away from them during his earthly life, do you think you and I need to be making them our centers for help and confidence, or do you think it's just a matter of time before they turn on you and hurt you too? There's a lot of wisdom to be gained in that idea. And I'm not saying the Lord cannot work in a heart like that because he does in the scripture. He does. There are Pharisees and Sadducees that come uh, to him. He does do those things. Perfect. That's much bigger. He does those things. And there are, miracul- uh, there are miracles that are to happen all the time. But for the most part, when you and I are navigating through this life, you need to have some shrewdness and some wisdom. You young ones, you need to listen to me right now. If you're in high school, you need to be paying attention. These are people that you need to see, diagnose, and find as ministry, not fellowship. Why? Because just because today you're in favor, tomorrow you may not be. The person you're standing with gossiping about someone else about or the person that you're standing there destroying someone else's character or making up rumors or lies, tomorrow that person may be turned against you and they may be doing the same things. You need to understand and you need to deal with people as they are, not as you and I wish them to be. Don't miss that. You might miss the message that Jesus brings. If physically, mentally, emotionally, you're a little bit out of whack right now, you need to be paying attention. Are you hungry, angry, lonely, or tired? You need to be paying attention. Jesus has a message. He has a will. He's maneuvering your day. And if those things are messed up, your physical body and your spiritual body, your spiritual soul, they have deep, deep connection together. If your physical body is off, your spirit is going to read things improperly. You have to be paying attention. That story with the disciples, what happens? Jesus is telling them, he's teaching them a story about the leaven of the Pharisees and they're worried about where they're going to get lunch because they forgot the bread. You and I might miss things if we are not paying attention. And finally, you can't miss this and that's why we're going to read through it again today. Jesus asks, who am I? And you and I have to answer that question. Verse 13. Now, when Jesus asked, uh, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? This is what we read last week. And they said, uh, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, verse 15. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
And I tell you, look at verse 18, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Verses Matthew chapter 16 verses 13 to 15 Upon what rock? This idea comes up. Jesus looks at Peter and says, Upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. Now, there's a couple different ways that people that are smarter than me look at the passage. I'm going to give you a little piece of each one of them. Number one is the message. Jesus looks at Peter. Who do you say that I am? And Peter replies, You are the Son of God. You're the Messiah, the one to come. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the one that was promised in Genesis. You're the one that's promised all throughout the Old Testament. I think of the book of uh, Joel, chapter 3. This is so cool to put this together when you have somebody explain it to you. Joel, chapter 3. Why is Jesus' first miracle turning water into wine? Because Joel, chapter 3 says, when the Messiah comes, the hills are going to flow with sweet wine. Jesus never claimed to be Messiah. No, he just did a lot of Messiah stuff. Phase one, an abundance of sweet wine. Listen, Jesus is the Messiah, the one to come. That's the answer you and I need to give. You have to give it. You can't miss it. Who are You are Messiah. You are my Messiah. You're the one that was sent to fix me. We're always worried about the rest of the world. Jesus is a personal Savior. Your mess was just as messy. Your stuff was just as nasty. I did not deserve heaven. I deserved hell. I did not deserve to be called a child of God. I needed what the Lord had promised, which was a Savior. And so did you. And so when it's time to ask that question, Peter gives this amazingly godly answer. And Jesus says, blessed are you, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood didn't give you that answer. You know who gave you that answer? My Father in heaven. You got to peek into the plan. You got to peek into what was going on, what the Lord is doing right now. God has given you access to it. And he responds with, you are Messiah, the Son of God, Son of the living God, the promised one. And then Proverbs 3, 4 is one that will bend your mind. Talking about the Lord and who is his son and what is his son's name in Proverbs 3, 4. Like that's a wild thing to read if you are strictly uh, 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 Jewish in your thinking. Lord and the, the Son of God, Lord and the Son of the Lord, what is his name? What is he even talking about? Jesus comes along later and fulfills that. What is his name? It is Jesus. It is the Christ. Verses 16 to 18, the messenger. So he goes from the idea of, of, of Jesus is going to build his kingdom. He's going to build his church on the message that Peter has just proclaimed. The other one is Peter. He's going to build his church off the message. He's going to build his church off of the messenger. Simon as Peter and the transformation that will come. This guy's a mess. He's a big mouth. Right? Like he corrects the Lord. Like, whoa. That's brazen, dude. Like you've seen this, this, and this. And, and he's not dumb enough to do it in public. So when you read the rest of the passage, he pulls him aside. Right? I'm going to... I'm going to do the godly thing, and I'm going to rebuke you. But not everybody's going to be around, Lord, so we'll get through this together, right? Instead of being a real idiot and yelling it out loud in front of everybody else, like correcting Jesus in front of the crowd, Peter pulls him aside. Lord, we're not, we can't let this happen. 
Peter's a big mouth. He's a mess. And God looks at him. Jesus looks at him and says, upon this rock, Simon, Peter, this rock, I'm going to build my church. Now, the Catholic faith has taken this as far as you can run with it and just saying that Peter was the first pope and every pope since then, this is the message that God was given to Peter and it's been passed down from pope to pope to pope. We don't believe that. There were some flawed individuals that have been set up basically in accordance right beside to have the same amount of authority of scripture, scripture itself. Like we do not believe that. But I do believe there's an element here of Jesus talking to Peter and telling Peter upon you, you're going to be a part of me building this kingdom. You're not the cornerstone. I am. That would be 21, 44, Matthew 21, verse 44. You're not that stone, Peter, but you're going to be a stone. And upon that proclamation and upon your life, even though you're a mess and you're a train wreck and there's a lot of work to do, I'm going to build my kingdom in you and through you. And I think you and I can take that and just love that idea. If God can use Simon, God can use me. We'll see his story come up throughout the rest of the gospel. And and most of us already know the story of his denial of Jesus three times, right? Man, you mean Simon failed? Peter failed? Yeah, he did. He fails in about the next seven words. He fails at the end of Jesus' life. In the book of Galatians, the apostle Paul rebukes him in public for not eating with Gentiles. So he fails again even after the resurrection. That's good news for me and you. Jesus is the only perfect one, and he is our Messiah, and he is the one that is uh, equipping us to live that life. But he uses flawed people to build his kingdom. That is fascinating. Acts chapter 10, who is the first person to actually be told to go to the Gentiles? Other Gentiles have interacted. But God opens the door to the Gentiles and the church in Acts chapter 10 through the centurion Cornelius. Who is told to go to him? Peter, the staunch Jew, the Jew of Jews. And in a dream, God gives him a vision and God says, go to this man. He is praying. You're going to be the answer of his prayers. There are three men at the door. You answer it. You follow them. You do what it is they're going to ask you to do. And he does. And so he opens the door to this church, to the Gentile world. Through a flawed and broken messenger. The ecclesia, this church, will be uh, built by Christ. It will be built on his truths and his person. And it will be gathered together by fallen and broken individuals. I love that song that come out. I can't remember how many years ago it was, but it was, there's no plan B. Like the idea of building the church, the idea of doing the, the ministry, doing the mission. It is, it is given to you and I. God has ordained it so that he is going to use us to build his church There has never been a higher calling in the world and it's passed out to you and it's passed out to you and it's passed out to you and it's given to me. And God says, I want you within you and then through you to be a part of building my church. That is amazing and unbelievable. You are so important. You live in a world that wants to tell you you are nothing but a number or a face and if you don't have this and you don't have that, then you're never gonna make it. That's not the message God has to offer. You are intricately woven together.
placed in this time for this purpose. Doesn't matter what happened yesterday. Doesn't matter how you got here or where you're at right now. The Lord knew you were going to be here in this moment, and he wants to use you to do his work. That is an amazing story just to bite into and chew on. It can buoy you the rest of your life. There is nothing bigger and more amazing than that. But the idea is what kind of church is he going to build? So I'm going to run you through a couple things in the rest of this passage. What kind of church is Jesus going to build? Look at verse, uh, well, let's see, 18 and 19 we've already read. And I tell you, uh, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Number one, what kind of church is Jesus building? He's building an invading church. You and I are not on the defensive. The enemy and his kingdom are on the defensive. He is losing people every day. The gates of hell are not prevailing against the church. Doesn't matter if it's China or Russia, West Virginia, it does not matter. The gates of hell are not prevailing against the people in that that have gathered together under one Lord and are yielding to him and doing the mission. Why? The church is growing. Iran, Iraq, the church of Jesus Christ will not be stopped. The gates of hell signify it is being stormed. You're not at war. I'm not at war. I'm just going to wake up tomorrow and kind of meander through the day. It's not a big deal. You are absolutely at war. The enemy thinks you're at war. Popular culture knows it's at war. Why are they fighting so hard to push against the message of Scripture, the message of Christ, the message of salvation? Why are you just good enough the way you are and you just need to be accepted the way you are and your self-esteem is of utmost importance? Why are these things permeating the culture? Because they go directly against the message Jesus come to bring. The Lord loves you, but you're a mess. When you act like a mess, you should be called to account and change those behaviors. Boy, that really doesn't come into play a whole lot in our culture well you just need to deal with me right you need to suck it up i am who i am you know well you just don't love me right then because you're not cool with that no these are bad behaviors and this is a bad trajectory and you're going to curse your whole life and you're going to curse everybody else around you listen we are an invading church an invading kingdom and the world hates it you are on the offensive you're not on the defensive. I love the idea of the gates in this one. I was reading through it again this morning, and I come to this thought. Gates is a military idea in this passage. But what are gates are also known as other things in the Old Testament. Gates were places where business was done, thoughts were given. If you remember, I think it's uh, I think it's Proverbs 31. It talks about um, the husband of the virtuous wife uh, will be honored at the gate. Like his name will not be talked about. He will not be heard. So what if this idea was not just military, Christian? What if you and I were supposed to be engaging as thought leaders or engaging in political matters like they did at the gate in the Old Testament? What if God actually held us accountable to have a, a, a picture of life that actually made sense with the gospel, with scripture attached, with who we were attached, with how the world actually is. What if you and I were actually required to sit at the gate with people that believe other ways and speak with them about it? You say, I don't, I don't do that. I, I can't do that. Listen, if you ain't doing that with your kids right now, somebody else is teaching them how to live. 
Somebody else is teaching them what kind of worldview to have. Right? And they're tuning me out. Three quarters of it. Right? They're ready to play with the other. Listen, if you're not doing that, at least engaging in the square, in the gate of your home, over thoughts about life, what they're watching on entertainment, is that true? Is it false? If you're not doing those things, somebody else is doing them. What if you and I were required at the gate to sit there and exchange ideas like they did at old? What if that was an idea of the gate in this passage as well? It's not just militarily us kicking it down, but it's us destroying strongholds too, mental ones, worldview strongholds, ideas of life. Friends, if you and I were just to take a couple minutes and talk to someone that actually believes like secular ideas, like that we come from nothing and the idea of relativism, like you do what's right for you and I'll do what's right for me and we'll just get along. If you, were, you and I were actually just to sit down and chat with somebody like that, you could poke holes into so much of what they believe and how they live just by leaning into Scripture and saying, but wait a second, is that really true? Can that be true? Can that be true for your life and not be true for my life? That doesn't make any sense to me. I remember apologists saying, you know, in some cultures they honor their neighbor, in some cultures they eat them. Is there a right one? Listen, if you and I would just engage at the gate of this war with just ideas and poke holes into what other people thought, they would leave at least with questions about how they're living or what they're getting ready to do or what they're building their life on. We could at least do that. You, you can't convince them to come into Christianity, but you can teach them that your worldview makes way more sense than theirs. The gate was also where politics got done. What if you and I also realized that we were supposed to engage in that? Some people have butchered that idea and made uh, uh, secular government the savior. That will never be the savior of the church. But let me tell you this. When the world gets what the world wants, it runs headlong into a curse. One of the only ways we have to combat that other than spiritual conversion is debating the ideas and then voting or legislating or working to legislate some of the things we think will be a blessing to other people. Only example, and then I'm moving on. The only example is this. How we have treated marriage and the family in this country has given no blessings. No blessings. Go back 50 years. How we have treated marriage and the family have given no blessings. Ask a a school teacher what their day is like. Ask them if they're accomplishing what they signed up to accomplish. Ask them if they can corral a group of kids, 25 to 30, half of which have a home life that's hell. Ask them. Ask a police officer how their interactions are going. I give you one example of how the world got what it wanted and it gave no blessings, only curses. We are an invading church. How about 19 and 20? What are we? We are an authoritative church. What we bind is bound. What we loose is loosed. And what does that mean is what you and I live off of is the authority of the word of God. If it says it's a blessing, it's a blessing. It doesn't change. If it says it's a curse, it's a curse. It doesn't change. We may be able to manipulate things to get around them. 
We may think because God doesn't punish immediately that he's not going to punish at all. Listen to me very carefully. You and I are authoritative. This church is authoritative, not because of who we are or how much charisma we have or how big the building is or how much money we have in the bank or how awesome the music is. We are not authoritative because of any of those things. If we stray from Scripture, we will crumble. You and I are authoritative in our life because of how we deal with the Word of God. For someone to look and say, I want a piece of what they have to offer, it's because of the way you live with this book. If you deviate, the curses may be hidden, but they will eventually be found. It is not my truth. It is not your truth. It is God's truth. And you and I are authoritative because we know the one that wrote the truth. And the further we lean into what he has to offer, the stronger you and I become in our lives, in our family, in our church. It just goes outward and gets stronger and stronger and stronger. The more men you have, the more women you have that believe this, the stronger the families are. The more families you have that are strong, when they meet here, we are stronger. The more uh, family members in a community that you have that believe in these things, the stronger the community gets. And it just goes out and out and out. What we bind is bound. What we free is loosed. The direct piece to know how these things are bound and loosed is the authority of the word of God. Blessings aren't just blessings because we call them so. We are invading. We are authoritative. Look at verse 21 with me. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. Those, those three people, who are those people? Those are the exact people that Jesus left a couple verses earlier. Do you remember? There's peace. There's interaction and friction. He walks away. These are the same group of people that are going to end up trying to kill him, crucify him, make him suffer in the very near future. Friends, there's a lesson there. Young kids, teenagers, there's a lesson there. Pay attention and be killed and on the third day be raised that's the piece that most of the disciples missed as they interact later on you're going to see they only get like the first two-thirds of the story they don't like it and they want to run verse 22 and peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying far be it from you lord this shall never happen to you but he turned and said to peter get behind me satan you are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Verses 21 and 22, what do we see? We are a misunderstood church. We are an invading church. We are an authoritative church, but we are also a misunderstood church. The world cannot understand in secular eyes and human eyes what we are trying to do and what we are actually achieving. Being removed from this world's values, the church's mission cannot be perceived, and it's rarely understood. It's rarely understood. Never entirely. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, if we go to feed the poor, the world can say, well, that makes sense, right? What they don't understand is why we're feeding the poor, why we're loving the poor, or why on the back end of it you create safeguards so that the people that are poor eventually can get out of being poor. They never understand all of what the church is doing. So because of that, there's misunderstanding constantly. 
say, well, you believe in this ethic and this morality because you hate these people, that people, and those people. No. We believe in this, this, and this because we think that's what blesses people and blesses cultures. We're misunderstood. We don't want to impose our morality on someone because we think we're right. That's not the reason. The reason is because God is right. And as you and I live in right relationship with him, our lives are blessed. And those that don't, their lives are cursed. And there's nothing we can do to change that. They're miserable. They're lonely. They're suicidal. And you think, what's the common thread? Well, most of the time, the common thread is they have a secular world view. They do secular evil things. And then they can't figure out what is going on. Friends, we're not trying to be bullies. We're trying to bring about the shalom of God on lives that desperately need it. The peace of God. The will of God is that I go to hard places, love hard people, be falsely accused at times, and sometimes suffer for their blessing. They definitely don't understand any of that. You're going to put yourself out there and you're going to do hard things and love hard people and you're going to do it on purpose? That's crazy. They don't understand that kind of concept. They love when it's easy or when they can hashtag it or put it on social media, shoot themselves a picture, you know, a little selfie and toss it on there, helping the poor today. Hashtag save the earth. Like, wow, is that a private jet? That's pretty awesome. Okay. How many houses you own? All right, that's awesome. Hashtag it up. Like, but you're going to actually go? You're going to show up there? You're going to love those people that have treated you so poorly? You're going to forgive? They don't understand those things. So we are a misunderstood church. Jesus was a misunderstood Savior at times, and this is one of those moments. Peter loves him, and Peter's going to pull him aside and say, that ain't happening to you, Lord. I'm sorry, but I'm never going to let that happen. He's like, "Mm, get thee behind me, Satan. Right? So what are we? We are an opposed church. You have enemies. So do I. If our kingdom is invading, then it makes sense that the tyrants and the rulers of this kingdom don't like it. Neither do the influencers that want to influence how you live your life. They don't like it either. And then we have one major enemy in Satan himself, which Peter went in like four verses from like, blessed are you, Peter. (laughs) God has given you this word and you spit it out, bravo, to get thee behind me, Satan. Like that's how fast the, the coin can flip. So let's make sure that we take this with a, with a dose of humility as well, right? One day you and I are on the mountaintop. Uh, the next minute, like we're getting our booty whopped, right? Peter is standing there. Peter hears this message from Jesus. He loves Jesus. He's misunderstood it, so he's going to pull him aside. And Jesus looks at him and calls him the name. That's not said because you and I don't have real enemies. It's said because Jesus is making a point. His kingdom is opposed. And if you are living for it, you will be opposed as well. Friends, people you thought were friends, people at work you thought were colleagues, family that you thought loved you, and the enemy himself. Some of you have made so many changes for the Lord in the last couple years, in the last five, six, seven years, that you have come under immense attack and oppression and you don't know what's happening. What's happening is your life has changed to look more like Jesus's and now the other side is paying attention. And instead of letting you just live your life honoring God and glorifying the Lord, right? 
somebody mentioned your name and they said, we need to apply a little pressure. And of all the things the enemy is, one of his good qualities is persistence. He don't quit. The Lord is going to lock him up and shut him down. Until then, he is ferocious. And some of you all have made so many changes for God. You are walking in such a direction that you've never walked in before that there is uh, opposition coming from you and you don't know what's happening. What's happening is you are living like Christ. Read the Gospels. Read the book of Acts. How much opposition did they come against? You're now living a life that looks like them. So physically, in people, and even supernaturally, things you and I cannot see are happening right now to deter you, to break you. And Jesus said to steal, kill, and destroy. There's a force out there right now that wants to kill you and your children. And he never lets up. The grace of God and the will of God is the only thing stopping that. We are an opposed church. Look at verse 24 with me. Last passage. And then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in glory uh, of his Father, in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Chapter 16, verses 24 to 26, what kind of church is he building? He's building a sacrificial church. To take up my cross is to give my allegiance to the mission of another. When you take up the cross, you're going to do what the soldier tells you to do or he's just going to kill you right there. I don't know how many of them chose to do that whether than to walk that cross and to deal with what was coming next. But you would just think eventually they would quit. Why? Because their will is no longer. You're going to pick up your cross and you're going to carry it to wherever that soldier or that king or that Roman Caesar has said you need to go. To pick up my cross is to give my allegiance to a mission that is not my own. It is another. It is to pick up my cross is to give my mental and verbal capacities to those in need of encouragement or wisdom. To pick up my cross is to give my shoulders and my back to help carry the burdens of others. To pick up my cross is to give the skill and power of my hands to the need of others. To pick up my cross is to give the movement of my legs and feet to spread the gospel story freely as it was given to me. It's to follow him. It's to give up my self-sufficiency and my self-reliance. To pick up our cross involves so much. But let me give you the blessing. If you pick up your cross and you do what Jesus tells you to do, you no longer have to worry about supplying your own stuff. We come to the end of ourselves really, really quick. It's one of the wonderful things about being a sacrificial part of Jesus' kingdom, which is he promises to supply what I need. What I have to be worried about is the needs of others. Lord, put me in the position to bring you the most glory as the, pray, as the prayer that I've prayed for years. And it's really just as simple as it can be because that's really all that needs to happen. Put me in the position that brings you the most glory, God. Whatever lifts the name of Jesus up, put me there. Because if you put me there, I will be the husband I need to be, the father I need to be, the pastor I need to be, the fireman I need. I'll be all of these other things. It is really that simple. If I take up my cross and I get on his mission, I no longer have to worry about supplying the things of this world or living for its applause. It's 
a very freeing thing to be this kind of church and to be this kind of Christian. What kind of church is Jesus building? Well, 1627, he's building a rewarded church. Jesus is bringing with him rewards. We talked about so much of this stuff in Sunday school this morning, talking about five of the crowns that are talked about in Scripture and, and, and how we go about I don't know, earning is so weird to say. I'm not, not going to say it. But how we go about one day having Jesus look at us and say, well done, here is your crown. Well done. Like how we go about that is an amazing thing. But he is a rewarding king. Reward is coming with him. It allows you and I to go one more day, one more step, one more time of that abuse, one more time of that frustration, one more time of that insult. Why? Because the king is paying attention and he brings with him rewards. He is coming and he is not forgetful. Verse 28, what else? We are a victorious church. Because our king is undefeated, undeterred, and unrelenting, because he doesn't quit, because he didn't wash his hands of us, you and I are victorious. What he has promised will come to pass. With assurance, we know that promises to the church will be kept because for 2,000 years they have been kept. What was prophesied about the church, what was promised about the church, and what was paid for at the cross of Christ will be provided. You are victorious. Whatever you go against today or tomorrow has been defeated ultimately for the glory of Jesus, but ultimately also for your blessing. Wake up tomorrow in freedom. You wake up tomorrow with the idea that you are unstoppable. Why? Because your mission is not your own. It is Jesus's. Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, we talk about it all the time. How does he finish his time with the disciples? He starts off that commission with all authority is mine, and he finishes it with I will never leave you. What kind of church are we? We are a victorious church. Revelation is a beautiful book. Hard to comprehend at some places, but there are a couple things that are very, very clear in it. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be the light, and they will reign forever and ever. As they come this morning to play, you are a victorious church you are a victorious christian so who makes up the church if the church is all of this how should its members be built on the rock flawed but stabled and anchored we need to be invading you need to be aggressive you are not going to passively become more like jesus you are not going to passively step into discipleship you are not going to passively fall into loving other people enough to tell them the gospel you and i are going to have to be aggressive we're going to have to have a plan, and we're going to have to follow through with it. You need to be an invading kingdom. One of the worst things in the world is for a man to be passive. You need to find things that are worthy of your passion, and you need to get passionate now. Your days are waning. Find yourself in the middle of the fight 
get there, be there, and be a part of it. Your family will thank you for it. We need to be authoritative. Your life needs to matter. Other people need to be able to take pieces of your life, apply it to theirs, and have it bless them too. That, that comes not because of decisions you've made. That comes because your life looks like the Word of God, and it translates from person to person to person. You need to be authoritative. There are a lot of people out there that have questions. You have answers. You should have answers. We need to be sacrificial, taking moments to love other people, using what God has given us in every capacity, time, talent, treasure, testimony, and temple, your body, your treasure, what you know, how you operate, the temple that you've been given, the testimony that you have. Those things need to be used for the glory of God. Invest them there, and you'll never lose them, ever. You are a rewarded person. Start living like it. The Lord is coming again to hand you things you have never even dreamed about. But even right now, his presence is with you. You and I, you can watch, you can turn on TV and you can watch these people flounder all day long. From politicians to actors to sports stars, they're millionaires and they're a train wreck. Some of you all are rewarded right now because your life is hard, but it is sturdy and stable. And you've got people around you that love you and you know the Lord of the universe and you are at peace. And finally, you are victorious. Stand with me this morning as they sing. If not, what's wrong? Do you know him? And if you do or if you claim to, are you close? Are you yielding to the things you know to do? For him who knows to do right and does it not, to him or her, it is sin. So know what the things that you know to do, start there. The closest thing you can do that is the right thing to do, start there and do it. And watch the presence of God just overflow. But if we're not living that kind of life, then what's wrong? It's not God and it's not the message. It's us. And so we need to do business with the Lord. If you need something this morning, you come.